Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Once we were able to dial in our camera settings and figure out how to get an optimize basically a, a capture delay so that we weren't recording quite as many false trigger photos. Um, now we can go about every three to four weeks and it takes a team of two people about eight days to visit all of the camera locations. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 56, Updates from the Borderland. Today, I have Emily Burns of the Sky Island Alliance on with me for a second time. Just as the title depicts, this is an update from the first episode she was on. That episode was number 45, Border Walls and Wildlife, and we talked about a study that they were starting, uh, which was basically just a, a trail camera study of species right around that border uh, of the uh, Arizona and Mexico. And today she's going to provide an update on how many species that they have captured on the trail cameras, how many photos, which are a ridiculous number of photos, um, and also some species of note that, the, that they're noticing. Uh, she's also going to provide some updates on how the study is going to move forward, uh, what the status is of the border wall in this area, uh, and sort of what she needs from regular Joes like me and you to help out with this study. So let's not wait any longer. Let's just dive right into our conversation with Emily. Today, I am joined with Emily again. Emily, thank you for coming back on to talk more about your study with the uh, proposed and I guess sort of, as we just talked about, starting to creep in border wall. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Really excited to talk about wildlife, my favorite topic. Yes, mine too. So much so that uh, I started a podcast about it. <laughs> uh, so real quick for anyone who hasn't uh, listened to some of the previous episodes, uh, Emily was on before on episode number 45, Border Walls and Wildlife. Uh, if she, if her voice sounds familiar, that might have been an episode you listened to. So some things that we're going to be talking about today, uh, we got into much deeper uh, things uh, about it um, back in that first episode, sort of how the, stu the study that we're going to be talking about, how it was set up and, and why we needed it. But Emily, could just to sort of brush everyone up on what the study is about, could you just give sort of a brief overview of what the study is, how it's going on, and what you're trying to accomplish? Sure. Yeah, down in southern Arizona, there are mountain chains that span the U.S.-Mexico border. And these have long been known as being critical wildlife corridors and habitat for a variety of species that live both in the U.S. and Mexico. Our study is designed to document the wildlife community in this part of North America using an array of trail cameras. 
And we have our cameras deployed across a systematic grid pattern on both the US and Mexico side of the border. And we have 58 camera points that are spanning uh, 34 miles of the border. So these cameras started running officially at the beginning of March. And in that time, we've learned a lot about how grass triggers cameras uh, and how to deal with a, a sea of photographs of waving vegetation, which is um, quite relaxing, but also frustrating when you just wanna see which animals are appearing on your cameras. And so we've been maintaining our cameras with the help of um, a Mexican nonprofit partner, Naturalia, and, and then with volunteers and another nonprofit organization in the US called Patagonia Area Resource Alliance. Yeah, so two things with that. Uh, one, I'm glad that you're not doing this completely on your own because that's a lot of cameras over a long, uh, a very wide area to, to try to pull them. Do, do you pull the, the cards weekly? Is that when you try to get them or... Well, in the first part of the study, we had cameras in remote locations that we had never studied, never used before. And so we were checking them pretty frequently. We were going about every week or every two weeks. Once we were able to dial in our camera settings and figure out how to get an optimize basically a, a capture delay so that we weren't recording quite as many false trigger photos. Um, now we can go about every three to four weeks and it takes a team of two people about eight days to visit all of the camera locations. Okay. And then we bring the memory cards back and we, we sift through all the photographs. Yeah, and the, my other point from that uh, with the whole getting vegetation swaying in, in the wind, uh, I just a couple weeks ago uh, ventured into cellular trail cameras. Uh, just one, got one just to try it, just to see what it was like. And it took me quite a while to figure out um, and, and this is coming from someone who's used the uh, game cameras for a number of years. Took me a while to really get that one dialed in because uh, there are a lot of pictures that are being sent to me that I'm paying for in data that it's like, well, there's, there's nothing there, but just that one tall weed that I forgot to clip down before, whenever yeah. I hung the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a lot of that. We've been pretty amazed. We've had, um, really spectacular landscape views of weather systems moving through, hailstorms, big rainstorms. It's, we're moving into our monsoon season now, so we're getting a lot of big, big rainstorms coming in. We saw a wildfire that broke out that was caused by a lightning strike. So one of our cameras, you can see the fire starting to burn through this grass valley. Um, and then one of our cameras was actually in that location that burned. Um, I, you know, have to give some, some kudos to Browning. They designed a camera that, while well, it did melt, it saved the memory card. So now they're <laughs> oh, wow. excited about that. Yeah, so that, we have the photographs of the fire approaching and then we replaced the camera within a few days and got to watch the, the re-occupation um, of a whole bunch of species coming right back into the burned area, which was really exciting to see yeah. how many animals were there again. That's, that's awesome. And that's good to know that Browning makes a camera that, while it may not survive, at least it, it keeps the data. Um, yeah. So your study is now as we're talking a little bit past the 90 day mark, but I wanted to have you back on right around that time because you could have some solid data there. What are some of the things that, that we're seeing? What kind of 
how many species, what are some species of note, um, what, what are we sort of deriving from all those thousands and thousands of pictures that you've been sifting through? Sure. Well, uh, since the study began, we have 1.6 million photographs. <laughs> so we stripped out all of the ones that don't have any wildlife in them. But we were left with this pretty amazing collection of highly diverse wildlife detections. And I'm really excited to say we have 71 species detected by our camera array so far. Wow, that's, that is a lot of different species. Um, you know, I, I think of with, granted, I'm only trying to see, you know, d depending on the time of year, deer or bear or elk in Pennsylvania, but 71 species, that, that's a lot of diversity in, in a single area, at least in, in my mind. Or, or was that like around the number that you were expecting? Did, did it exceed it or? Well, I'll tell you, we had a few distributed cameras prior to the study in this area, one on a springs, one on a water source, and um, actually two were on springs. And for over a year, those cameras maybe got to 12, 15 species apiece. And so I think there've been a number of surprises, one being how many animals we actually detected for the whole camera network, which I think really speaks to the importance of having multiple locations if you want to define what the wildlife community is in a, in a landscape. So that's, that's partly it. Um, we also, I, we designed the study specifically to detect large mammals. And so we were really looking for cats and bear and deer and pronghorn and things like that. But we've had a lot of detections of birds and we've actually had 39 species of birds. So um, we're picking up insects that are triggering our cameras, even reptiles. Um, the model camera we're using is triggered by either heat or motion. It doesn't have to be a combination of both. So for that, we're getting attacks on we weren't expecting to detect at all. That, that's really interesting. So what are some of the, the big species of note that you're detecting on these cameras? Um, well, the biggest mammals that we have been able to record with our cameras are mountain lion and American black bear. Those are two of the wide-ranging mammals in our region that are moving back and forth between separate skyline mountain ranges and they're crossing the border pretty frequently. So we've seen um, mountain lion and black bear in both of the mountain ranges that are part of our study, the Huachuca Mountains and the Patagonia Mountains. And these species, as you know, you and your listeners know, are common throughout North America. And their species range goes all the way down um, into Central America. For mountain lion, it goes down into South America. So when we think about the border wall going through 2,000 miles at the southern end of the United States, it's completely cutting off the access of animals to be able to migrate or move between their habitats and throughout North America, which is concerning when there's less and less habitat available for these species because of development, habitat fragmentation for roads and other things. Um, and with climate change, changing habitats, these animals need as much room to roam as possible so they can find the next best, next best territory. Um, yeah, yeah so I I've, I feel like it's, this is probably something we talked about last time, but you know, I mean, we're set, we as humans set up this boundary, right? Mexico's here and America is here and 
this line dictates the change from one country to another but these animals don't know that you know we didn't sit down with them and say are you okay with this so especially the animals that are are like you said migrating or need these vast um, you know territories that they're moving through to either find mates or to find food or to find even Mm -hmm. just the shelter they need that you know we're we're cutting them off they're not going to be able to get through this wall presumptively right i mean that's the whole purpose of putting it there if a person can't get through how's a black bear or a mountain lion going to get over through this wall yeah yeah that's right i mean we're looking at a wall that's 30 feet tall made of steel um that's that's not going to be possible for large mammals we don't think it's going to be possible even for some of the bird species that migrate between mexico and the u.s Um, we have elf owl I had an elf owl outside my window here in Tucson today. It's the smallest owl in the world. It's so cute. Uh, We've had 12 detections of elf owl and they're a bird species that migrates from Mexico up into Southern Arizona and New Mexico and Texas for breeding habitat. And they are following insects and they come up here to breed. Um, And if they're not able to fly over the wall, they're going to be eliminated from their breeding habitat. And then they and then they have their overwintering habitat in Mexico. So what's going to happen to a species like that? We know from other research on pygmy owls that they won't fly up and over shorter stretches of older border wall, border wall that's only 18 feet. So we're while there hasn't been research on this yet, we are really concerned that elf owl will not be flying up over into wide open sky to to cross. That's not something that I would think about with birds that they most birds wouldn't be willing uh, or not most birds but that there are some birds that wouldn't be willing to fly just even 30 feet off the ground just to get over something um so you know obviously you know we're looking at this this wall and thinking oh you know the bigger mammals but it's also going to affect a whole lot of movement for a whole lot of other species as well just like those elf owls that that is not something i would have thought about And there's also going to be a tremendous amount of disturbance from the actual construction. They have begun construction of the border infrastructure, which is both wall and border roads that will be used by Border Patrol um, in the Huachuca Mountains, so to the the east of our study zone. And we're really interested to know what, what sort of response wildlife has to the noise of the construction itself. Um, we, we suspect that they may be putting in lighting um, along the wall and we'll be losing darkness um, in this really, really wild <laughs> stretch of the U.S. Um, and they're beginning to dynamite into the mountains to build the structure. So there's going to be a repelling of animals in the short term while this infrastructure is built. And then what happens when the animals come back into this area and can't move in the way that they're used to? There's so many questions about that. And that's why we want to keep our cameras running and operational as the border wall um, is is built so that we can measure the impacts of of the wall so how has anyone associated with the building of the wall have they like have you been has your organization been able to talk to any of them about how long this will take exactly how many people are going to be there like what they're going to be doing i mean obviously they're building the wall but you mentioned dynamite in the mountains, like that's not necessarily something I would have thought about that they would be using to build the wall. Uh, Have you guys had any dialogue with anyone? 
Um, we just found out earlier in July um, through one of our partner organizations that um, stewards the Arizona Trail, which is an 800 mile long trail across our state from Mexico to Utah. And they did speak with Border Patrol, but it was a real surprise that they were moving ahead with this construction, at least for us. Um, and then within a week, the engineers were there out on the scene in their beginning. We don't have a lot of information. We don't have the we don't have the designs of what's actually being built, but they have put out a public notice that they're going to be doing microblasting and and road construction for the wall. So they've closed the southern terminus of the Arizona Trail, which for the outdoor industry and for people that come to do this, it's going to dramatically change the border there and the, and the start of the trail. So. Um, I know it's not just wildlife. There are a lot of people that are being affected and cultural resources, tribal lands all along the border that are being um, decimated to build the wall. So with all these, if, if we put the animals to the side, to the side for a little bit, with all the people that it's affecting, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to get overly politicized, but how, how is it that they're able to do this that they're able to just keep rolling like how uh, you know if the it, at least in in the northeast if they're proposing a new toll road or a new highway through a stretch um i mean there it's years and years of planning and talking to people and sometimes buying land um uh, you know or buying the rights to go through the land things like that how is this wall able to go up and still affect all of these people that presumptively don't really want things to be disturbed in that area. Mm -hmm. Well, the process that the federal government is using is outside of the normal environmental process that typically happens. So as you're talking about, when a road is being built, there's usually years of study and inventory and looking at the environmental impacts and how they can be mitigated prior to a construction project. And that's not happening here. There's been no environmental study or review. And there have been more than 60 different federal laws, including the Endangered Species Act um, and the National um, Environmental Protection Act that have been completely waived. So it's outside, it's outside of a legal framework um, for building. And then the construction that's happening right now is going on federal land. And unfortunately, the federal land was protected because of the natural and cultural resources that they, that they have within them. And so it's it's the first place, it's the easiest place for them to build a wall. There doesn't have to be any imminent domain done, um, but it means it's our national forests, it's our national wildlife refuges that are being um, impacted first. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's try to switch to a little bit of a happier note as much as we can when we're talking about this. What, what were you most excited about with the species, all 71 different species, which one really got you excited that you're like, that's so cool. I'm so glad like we saw that one. We got that picture. Well, the first black bear that showed up was pretty awesome. It was in a, it was just a beautiful photograph in the grass, oak woodland. And you just see the bear coming into this, into the shot. That was really exciting for us because we had been waiting for the spring emergence of black bear to get 
get up and around. They don't often hibernate in our area, but they really slow down and are less active and they come down into lower elevation areas at some point in the spring, so we saw them. Um, and then we've been really excited to see the subtropical species. So species that are really more common in their core populations are in Central America and in Mexico. And the US just has the northern extent of species like the white-nosed coati. And we have several skunk species that are really Central American. We've got hog-nosed skunk and the hooded skunk. So we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of those animals around. There are not many people that would be excited to know that a skunk is coming around uh, <laughs> an area, but <laughs> I, underst I understand the point that you're getting at. Yeah, I think for us to just see the connection um, of this, these habitat corridors when we have tropical species coming up is just really neat. And we've had gray hawk, which is a, um, this is a, a, a bird that typically is in Central America and it flies up the coast, both coasts, west and east coast of Mexico to breed in Arizona um, and to here in the Southwest. And so it's been really fun to, to see that one on our cameras as well. Uh, any, have, there, have you captured any exotic species like maybe a jaguar or anything like that? We haven't seen it. We haven't seen a spotted cat yet. So the two we're on the lookout for is jaguar, and we're also looking for ocelot, which is a smaller, um, it's a small leopard. And they're, um, they're definitely in Sonora. We have them on cameras in Mexico, so we just haven't seen them cross the border yet. But where we have our study, um, in the last decade, there have been sightings of both of those spotted cat species in the Huachuca Mountains and near the Patagonia Mountains. So we know this is jaguar territory. And our cameras like have only been running for, for 90 days. So we're going to continue to watch. And it's like, you know, it's like your birthday opening presents every time we look at our memory card to see <laughs> what's going to be in there, who's in there, who's hiding. Yeah, um, uh, trail camera card day is always like Christmas for me. That, so yeah. I can only imagine when you're, when you have the chance to see all those different kinds of species and especially someone like me from Northeast um, to even think about, I mean, mountain lion, we don't have mountain lion in Pennsylvania. Um, for those of you listeners who swear you've seen one and you think the game commission is lying, we don't have mountain lion. So it would be cool to have that opportunity where you, you know, you're, you're the excitement of, hey, we might actually see a picture of a big cat, you know, walking around mm -hmm. in front of us. That That's cool. Well, have you had any issues with the cameras where, you know, because of, issues that I've had that I think about, you know, batteries dying, um, you had it maybe pointing the wrong direction and you get a lot of backlit from backlight from the sunlight. Um, anyone stealing any of the cameras or anything like that? Well, we've, we've had a, we've had some, some issues, technical issues with the cameras, mostly what we already described in terms of memory cards filling up really fast. I mean, in the San Rafael Valley, which is one of the biggest, largest remaining grasslands in Southern Arizona, we put cameras out there for the first time and we had 18,000 photos at first with our first settings, um, you know, within five days. So that wasn't going to be sustainable. <laughs> um, and we realized that those cameras that were taking so many photos up front, actually they went through batteries quicker than we expected. But we've had really relatively little data loss. We lost a few days for the camera that burned, but that's understandable. <laughs> um, and then when, now that we have our, our settings, I think that are dialed in, our, we're just replacing our 
our batteries at an interval that we think is going to be safe to minimize damage. Um, we've had people on our cameras. There's a constant presence of Border Patrol and their vehicles that we can see either in the distance or nearby our cameras. We've seen horseback riders. Um, cattle, if I'm going to point fingers at anyone bothering our cameras, it's the cattle. They love to come up and scratch their face on our cameras when sometimes it's kind of charming, but they do tend to knock them off onto the ground in some cases. Um, and sometimes it's a happy accident. We actually see different types of ground birds or small mammals when, when that happens, but that's, that's really not what our, our study design is set up for. So we get them better secured once, once a cow um, has, has been playing with it. <laughs> uh, cows, always inquisitive and yet destructive at the same time. Uh, so where, where do we go from here? We've identified these species. You, you've said we're, you're going to keep the cameras out for um, while the wall is being built a little bit longer to see, I'm, I'm assuming to see how long it takes for species, some of these species maybe to come back. Um, but you know, where, where do we go from here? What do we do now? Well, the, the longer we let our cameras run, the better we're gonna understand the wildlife community, both on the Sonoran Mexican side and in Arizona on the US side. And so we've been, we've been plotting the number of new species that are showing up on our cameras over the number of study days that we've had. And we call that a species accumulation curve. And our curve has not leveled off yet. It's still climbing. We know there are more species still to detect. And we know that there are still species probably in our collection of wildlife photos that we haven't been able to ID yet. So we are gonna do a couple things. We're gonna invite volunteers to come and help look through our wildlife photos. And we've set up several projects on the platform Zooniverse where you can just log in to either our bird study or our mammal study, click through and help offer identifications. Even if you just want to check out and see what the, the photos look like, invite you to participate in those. Um, and we wanna just make sure that we have additional experts and amateurs looking at our photographs graphs and identifying the species to make sure that our preliminary IDs are correct. Um, and we know that there are species that our volunteers are going to identify us that our staff has, didn't know. So we're going to keep that going. And the phases of the study, you know, the first one is trying to get as much of this baseline wildlife community data established prior to wall construction. Once construction is going on through our area, we may be measuring short-term impacts of just the disturbance of the wall construction. And then long-term, it's monitoring the wildlife community and what changes may occur. Do we start to lose species that were once present before the wall? Are they, do they disappear from the area? I would expect that for species that are more subtropical that no longer can push higher um, latitudes into, into the US, for example. And then we're gonna be analyzing these data to understand better for this variety of species, exactly what kind of habitat are they more closely aligned with? So we're gonna be doing vegetation analysis and mapping these corridors along these 34 miles to really understand um, pre-wall, what is the habitat connectivity that, that works well for these species. And my hope is that we're gonna be able to restore their habitat. And this is a long game and we wanna know what good looked like before, before the wall to help guide that future restoration work. Yeah, you know, this makes me, makes me think what the subtropical species I mean, it's obviously possible that this could happen, but what would happen if, you know, um, maybe 
a mating pair of, of ocelots got trapped on our side? Like, would they, would they be able to survive? Would they be able to start a new population? All of a sudden, we have a, a new species that is a permanent fixture in the North American landscape. Um, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts? I know that's not necessarily the, the best case scenario, but is, what are your thoughts on that kind of possibility happening? Well, I, I mean, just, I have a lot of faith in nature and, you know, the vitality of species to find a way. So I think that populations, some animal species are going to be better able to deal with a, a bottleneck of being cut down to a really small number of individuals if just a fragment of a population is, is stranded on one side of the border wall. Um, I think these are the things that conservationists and wildlife scientists we're going to have to be looking at going forward and because I think each species response is going to be different. But what we do know for sure is we're doing a continental scale experiment to see are we forcing speciation to happen for a really broad number of species. And the Sky Island region that I'm talking about with you today and what we're focusing on has the highest number, um, the highest number of species and especially mammals in the entire um, North American region. So this really is a blending spot, a blending pod of, of temperate species and the subtropical ones. And so um, we're, we're, we'll be changing those dynamics completely when the wall is complete. Well, how, whatever comes out of this, I, I hope that as conservationists, as people, as engineers, uh, we come up with, you know, if we have all of a sudden we, you know, subtropical species that used to come up, but now they can't, I hope we come up with a way to get them to come up. Like if it's the, the elf owl now is no longer able to get to its breeding grounds, uh, I hope we can come up with some sort of way to enable them to get across that wall, just as we did with the mule deer in Wyoming, uh, you know, with uh, interstates. And we, we now are in even California, we're building these uh, humongous um, overpasses that are just for wildlife so that they can get from one side to the other. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we could possibly do to fix that situation, but it, it would be nice to um, be able to come up with a way to do what we want to do as far as building a border wall, um, but still not affect the wildlife species. Yeah, I mean, mule deer, we've got them on our cameras too. I mean, I'm just so struck with, you know, these iconic, what we think of as iconic American species are really found at the border as well. Um, yeah, I mean, how, how do we have safe passage for wildlife across public and private lands and across, you know, these lines in the sand, if you will, um, that are becoming not passable? I think those are, those are questions we're going to have to grapple with and use ingenuity. And hopefully the data that we're collecting is going to help point fingers to where crossings are needed most and, and where we could focus that, that, uh, that type of effort in the future on, on the landscape. What else do you want my listeners to know? What else do we need to be thinking about or how else could, could they help? Well, it's really helpful if people are interested in helping us crowdsource the identification. That would be a really great way to participate um, in the project if people have the means and can help sponsor a camera so we can keep keeping these the study going and collecting photographs at the border that's really helpful mostly I think it's just really thinking about um, 
the significance of the borderlands. It may be hundreds of miles away from where you live, but the common connection of species that we have down here and what we potentially are losing on our southern border. And talk to your friends and family about it and just raising the raising awareness about what this what this wall means um, for you know the American wildlife identity, I think would be really helpful. So where can where can people go to help crowdsource those photos and, and the identification of the animals? Great. Yeah. If you visit skyislandalliance.org under our wildlife program, there's a big overview of our border wildlife study. You can see our best photos of all 71 species that we have. And then you can click a link to help identify species. And it'll walk you through how we do it and direct you to either our border mammal study on Zooniverse or border birds. And you can choose which taxonomic group um, you'd like to check out first. And you can just click through and, and check out our field guide and get to know um, our borderland animals a bit. Yeah, I've clicked through a bunch of those best of photos and you are completely right that it is, they're, they're beautiful. They're stunning photos. It's amazing that just a, a game camera can take a picture uh, that looks that good. And, and not even just the wildlife that, that's in the photos, but even just the landscape and, and everything uh, of that area is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, how, where can people go to sponsor a camera? How, how can they help fund this study? by sponsoring a camera? Sure, well, we're really, if, if people have the means to support us, that's fantastic. We have a donation link on our website at skyislandalliance.org. Sky um, and, you know, any, any little bit counts, you know, help us buy a new set of batteries, you know, an extra memory card, um, put some gas in our truck so we can, you know, four wheel drive down over the rugged border. All of that helps so much. So anything people are, is a, are able to give is, is really helpful. Awesome. Emily, thank you for coming back on and talking about this. Um, hopefully, uh, this border wall isn't going to make a, a huge impact, although I have a feeling it will. But, um, uh, you know, as things move forward in your study, if there's more information or more uh, that you would like to get out to, to people as far as awareness, just let me know and I will have you on any time. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll let you know as soon as we see our first Jaguar, okay? <laughs> oh, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jason. Take All care. Right. Yeah, thank you. That will just about do it for today's episode. I really want to thank Emily for coming back on to give us an update of how the study is going. Uh, if you didn't notice, I'm trying really hard not to get too political when it comes to uh, this podcast, but sometimes it's extremely, extremely hard. I am very, very concerned with how this border wall is going to affect wildlife populations in that area. Uh, you know, it's hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from where I live, but I still feel like those species need to be protected. And this border wall is really not the solution for protecting that wildlife. So the best we can do is just give, disseminate is a good word, disseminate the information to all of you, my loyal listeners, uh, so that you can make the best, what, what decision you deem best. Um, not, I, will, I will be the first to say that I will never chastise you for the decisions you make. Um, I, I understand politically there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but when it comes to wildlife, 
you know, we need to get all the information out there. Uh, and that's what this whole podcast is about. So uh, those of you that continue to listen week after week, I really want to thank you for keep coming back and just uh, listening to my ramblings and uh, listening to what I think is entertaining topics from some excellent, excellent guests. Uh, Next week, you're going to hear from another tremendous guest, uh, a former game warden and land manager for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, I just absolutely loved my day uh, with the guests that you're going to hear next week. So uh, make sure that you tune back in. Uh, If you have a way to, you know, if you feel the pull to try to help with the Sky Island Alliance study, uh, all you got to do is go to skyislandalliance.org and uh, you can either, as Emily said, sponsor a camera if you feel that you are financially able to do that, uh, or you can get throw them a couple bucks uh, to help them buy uh, new batteries uh, or fill up their tank of gas, as she said. Uh, it, you know, we all know that people that run trail cameras, we all know that those are some expenses uh, there. So when you're running as many cameras as they are, that those bills will uh, will pile up. Uh, if you want to take part. In helping to identify some of those uh, species, uh, by all means, go on skyislandalliance.org and uh, you know help to crowdsource some of those species that they see there. Uh, she will definitely be coming back to give us uh, periodical uh, updates from time to time, so uh, I can only imagine that that species number is going to increase. So until next week, really do your best to get outside. Stay cool, make sure you're planning accordingly, and uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, stay wild. Mm